You are now listening to the August 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. everyone, this is Terry, the host of our program, The Screwed Tape Letters. We have been meditating on spiritual battles by reading through the book, The Screwed Tape Letters. This book was written by C.S. Lewis, known as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. We have been exploring the themes contained in this book pertinent to Christian life and the spiritual warfare involving the devils. For those of you who may be new to the book, here is a quick overview. The book revolves around two devils, the seasoned Uncle Screwtape and his novice nephew Wormwood. Uncle Screwtape is mentoring his nephew Wormwood on how to tempt and corrupt human beings. He discloses strategies that devils use to manipulate the human soul, cajoling it to turn away from God and pursue worldly pleasures instead. By reviewing this book by C.S. Lewis, we hope to gain insights into the ongoing spiritual battles where devils strategize to torment us and pull us away from Jesus. Ephesians 6.11 reminds us to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Understanding the devil's strategies can greatly assist us in wearing the spiritual armor and resisting his advances. Just as the saying goes, know your enemy and know yourself. It wouldn't hurt to consider how our adversary, the devil, attacks us. The devil is adept at exploiting our weaknesses, causing us to stumble, become discouraged, and doubt God. By examining their strategies, we can reflect on the spiritual aspects that may be easily overlooked if we are simply focused on ourselves. Last week, in his fifth letter, Screwtape writes about the war countries wage against each other and how humans respond to it. The year C.S. Lewis published the book, The Screwtape Letters, was 1942, a time when Europe was in the midst of the Second World War that began in 1939. At the time, the war was not something people just talked about, but it was a looming reality. It is within this context that we proceed with today's topic, uncertainty, and fear. Screwtape becomes delighted upon hearing a report from Wormwood about a patient who was a recent convert to Christianity. This patient faces a real possibility of being drafted into the war. The reason for Uncle Screwtape's delight revolves around the uncertainty the patient faces, the uncertain prospect of becoming a soldier. The devil finds joy in such uncertainty. Uncle Screwtape addresses his nephew, The more uncertain the patient's future, the better. As conflicting visions of the future fill his mind, alternating between hope and fear, there is no better way to drive the patient to develop anxiety, worries, and fear. This fear serves as an effective tool to make it harder for the human to fight off temptation and retain his faith. Therefore, Satan rejoices when people find themselves in uncertain circumstances that can bring pain and suffering. As a result, Screwtape instructs his nephew devil to entice the patient solely focus on uncertain future events that may never happen. 
Furthermore, events other than war could also generate feelings of anxiety and fear to arise in our daily lives. Think about what happened during the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Even without actually contracting COVID-19, we all were on our toes, constantly worrying about what might happen if we did. We anxiously listened to and sought out news updates, contemplating what future held for our lives and the unpredictable spreading of the virus. The intensity might have varied, but in severe cases, it led to depression, pessimistic temptations, and even suicide or substance abuse. We tend to worry about things. High school students worry about college admissions. College students worry about finding a job. Employees worry about retirement. And retirees worry about their nest eggs and health. It is not an exaggeration to say that we constantly live our lives in a state of worry. And behind that worry lies the fear of uncertain future. Even if the thought of war is not an immediate reality for us, the fear of the unknown is still very present. The world constantly bombards us with news to evoke fear. So what should we do? We can't simply leave the world and live in isolation. Of course, we might feel fear. However, as Christians, our approach to dealing with fear should be different. Screwtape rightly says that Jesus, as enemy of the devil, would always be there to help the humans to persevere the trials given to them. In this regard, patience and perseverance have an important part to play in one's faith and understanding God's will. Yes, when trials and fears come our way, what Jesus desires from us is not to be overwhelmed by fear or to try to avoid the impending reality. Instead, we should exercise patience and persevere through fear and overcome it. Screwtape says, the enemy of devils, that is Jesus, desires that human will focus on their current tasks, such as living according to his word in the given circumstance and context. However, the devil's mission is to constantly make them think about what might happen in the future, making them worry about future events that have not yet occurred. Screwtape then provides instruction for what to do to carry out the mission. First, Wormwood should make the human worry about the future by focusing on all the potential outcomes that may or may not come to pass. Secondly, he tells him to use fear tactics by making the human think of the worst-case scenario to create fear and worry. The human patient would then succumb to his own fear and is discouraged from trusting in God. What we need to learn from this is that we should accept the trials and fears we are currently facing. We should focus on the present and shouldn't bring future fears and burden ourselves with them. Rather, we should patiently persevere through the fears of the present. It is in this process that our faith grows and we are transformed into the people who trust God even more. We should examine ourselves and ask, Am I regretting and clinging to the past, not living in the present? Do I fear events that have yet to occur and unnecessarily living in the hypothetical future? It is important to check ourselves whether we are truly living in the present. Let us remember that our Lord always leads us step by step. That should be our strategy and faith to combat the devil's deviant tactics. Screwtape tells Wormwood. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of the things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as his crosses. 
Let him forget that since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to him. And let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen different and hypothetical fates is almost impossible, and the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is far easier and is usually helped by this direct action. The point is this that the devil uses fear tactics to make it harder for us to handle the struggles in life with grace and dignity. We must stay vigilant and be alert as we continue to keep eyes open for the devil's tactics. We should accurately understand God's word and know his heart so that we can pursue our purpose with wisdom, as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Our sight should solely be on Jesus Christ. Our goal is to love him, to know him, and become more like him. That is our ultimate goal. We will be back to continue this conversation.
my final day. He will not leave me at the grave, but I will rise. He will call me. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Stop Living with False Guilt. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Throughout the Bible, we see people entering into what are called covenants. Covenant is simply an agreement. It's a contract. It's a pact. For example, we see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel, entering into covenants. Let me give you an example. Genesis 21, 27 says this. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So when we sign contracts today, we are essentially entering into a modern-day type of covenant. And some of the covenants we enter into are good. Some of them, we sign contracts and we go, that's not such a good contract and we regret it later. But you know and have the experience of entering into contracts. Now, where things get really interesting is that we see in the Bible, God entering into covenants or pact with people at different covenants at different times with different people for different reasons. Let me give you a few examples. We see God entering into a covenant with Noah. And this is known as the Noahic Covenant. And in this covenant, God promises not to flood the earth anymore. So listen to this. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That includes us. I have set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Theological question. It's a tough one. Has God ever completely flooded the earth since this first time? No, he's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. This is a covenant that God made. And lo and behold, here we are thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. And guess what? The earth has never been completely flooded. God has fulfilled this covenant and he will continue to fulfill it. We never have to worry about it. Again, this is known as the Noahic covenant. We also see God making a covenant with Abraham in which he promises to bless Abraham and through Abraham being blessing to the nation. By the way, the covenant I'm making with you, Noah, is going to be a covenant that's going to be a blessing to the nations, to the whole world. I'm never going to destroy the earth again by the flood waters. Same with the Abrahamic covenant. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. And this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So listen to this covenant. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. When God makes a covenant, he not only fulfills it, but it just blesses everybody. Now, not to be outdone, one last example We see God making a covenant with David in which he promises to put one of David's descendants on the throne forever. Can you guess who that is? Right. This is known as the Davidic covenant. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, The reason I tell you about covenants and God entering into covenants is because one of the covenants that God entered into, one of the most significant ones in the Old Testament, is what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. And can you guess who it was made with? No, Jacob, not Moses. No, just kidding. It was Moses. If you're worried, it was Moses. It really was. Don't worry. I know you're all, you in failsafe, just say Jesus, right? But when we're talking about this, it's the Mosaic Covenant. He made it with Moses. And he made it with Moses at Mount Sinai when he, God took the Ten Commandments or his law and wrote it upon tablets of stone, and he gave it to Moses to give to the people. And we read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is the 10 commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people think when they think old covenant, this is what we know as the old covenant. They think the old covenant incorporates the entirety of the old Testament. The old covenant specifically is this covenant right here. When theologians or pastors talk about the old covenant, we're talking about the covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai, where he took the law and he wrote it on tablets of stone. And he says, you as a people need to obey this. Now in this covenant, God also instituted a priesthood, animal sacrifices, and instructions on how to properly worship God. But as you know, though God was completely faithful to Israel, were they faithful to him? No way, no way. The people were often 
often disobedient. The priests were continually corrupt and God's name was blasphemed as a result. So here's the kicker. God, and I mean in his absolute abundant grace, foretells of a day when he will establish a new covenant with the nation of Israel, which will be radically different and infinitely better than the covenant that he established at Mount Sinai, what we know as the old covenant. So church, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. Hear the new covenant foretold through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, and a faithful one at that. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. Church, hear the word of God today. The prophecy of the new covenant through the lips of Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah, do you know, do you know what he was called? He was called the weeping prophet. And he was called the weeping prophet because he was there and witnessed the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Isn't it ironic that the one who's known as the weeping prophet is given perhaps one of the most encouraging prophecies in all the Bible? The promise of a new covenant. A new covenant that is infinitely better than the old covenant. And of course, we see this covenant finding its fulfillment in that baby born in a manger. Church, again, hear the word of God, the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Jeremiah through the lips of Jesus now. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you three key reasons that the new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant and one huge way this should impact your life. So are you ready? Here we go. The first reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that it is built on a better sacrifice. So in the old, under the old covenant, once a year on the day of atonement, which we know as Yom Kippur, the high priest would offer animal sacrifices on behalf of himself and of the people. There's just one huge problem. The animals that were being offered could not remove the sins of the people. Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, The sacrifices being offered by the high priests under the old covenant were actually an annual reminder of all the mistakes, all the sins that you had committed that year. It's kind of like having a friend that has no boundaries and they are willing to tell you all the mistakes you make when you make them, right? Sometimes that's your spouse, right? But imagine having a friend and they go, hey, you know, let me just remind you of all the mistakes that you've made. This is what the old covenant did. This is what the law did. And the animal sacrifices did. It was a simple reminder because these animals cannot fully take away my sin. Now, God commanded these sacrifices and he accepted them in the sense that he overlooked their sins, but they were still there. He overlooked them because he knew that one day he was going to send a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish that would take away the sins of the world. But the people under the old covenant were only reminded every year of the sins that they had committed. And this is where things get great because Jesus serves as that perfect sacrificial lamb whose blood is sufficient to take away the sins of the world. This is exactly why we see John the Baptist saying this. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God, and everybody say it with me, who takes away the sins of the world. Not surprisingly, we see Peter saying the exact same thing. First Peter 1, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is founded on a better sacrifice. As a matter of fact, it's founded on a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice takes away our sins once and for all. Amen? That's great news. It has taken away my sins once and for all, And I no longer have to have a guilty conscience. Now, the second reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that it is mediated by a better high priest. So the priests who served under the old covenant went before God on behalf of the people. That's what priests do. Just one problem, a huge problem. They themselves were weak, sinful, flawed men. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews contrasts the priests under the old covenant with our great high priest under the new covenant. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's a bad thing about being a priest under the old covenant. You died. But he holds a priesthood permanently. Why? Because he was crucified and buried. But this priest is different than the others. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
Wow. Incredible. Not only is Jesus the better sacrifice, he's the better high priest. Incredible. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better high priest. He is the the eternal high priest who is able to save all those who trust in him precisely because he lives and he lives to make intercession for you and me. That means when you blow it, some of us are going to blow it today. Some of you already blew it on the way to church today, right? Some of you blew it before you left the house today. Let's just be honest, okay? The good news is, is you have somebody, a great high priest that is your advocate before the father. Dr. John MacArthur says it this way, constantly, eternally, perpetually, Jesus Christ intercedes for us before his father. Whenever we sin, he says to the father, put that on my account. My sacrifice is already paid for it. And through Jesus Christ, we are able, as it says in Jude 24, to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Amen. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant first because it is founded on a better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is mediated by a better high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, the third reason is this. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is built on better promises. Listen to what Hebrews says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And then it says this, since it is enacted on better promises. And one of the great promises of the new covenant is one that we already read about. Let me reread it for you. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel said it this way. Same thing, just slightly different. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. Amen? That's what I call a good promise. In the new covenant, God promises to work a miracle in the hearts of fallen, sinful men and women. And here's the promise. I'm going to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a brand new heart. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were in the old covenant, in an old Testament, and you heard that God is going to one day take out your heart, the heart that you currently have and give you a brand new heart, a heart of flesh. He's going to remove your heart of stone. Would you be excited? Absolutely. Praise God for this. And this is exactly what he promises. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to fill us with his spirit. And he's going to enable us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. By the way, what's the significance of the virgin birth? Well, there's many reasons why the virgin birth is significant, but let me give you one. The virgin birth is significant because it is proof positive that the birth of Christ was a supernatural event. It was a supernatural birth. But guess what happens when God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh called the new birth? You're born again. It's a supernatural birth. We see in the birth of Christ what God eventually does in us. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it is by his grace. It is a supernatural act. That is what I would call one heck of a promise. And we see this being fulfilled all throughout the New Testament. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, say it with me, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but say it with me, but Christ who lives in me. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I will work in you to obey my rules and my laws. So these are just three of the reasons the old covenant, the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. It's built on better sacrifices. It has a better high priest and it has better promises, infinitely better. Now, with that being said, let me give you one huge way this should impact your life today. Hebrews 10 says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So remember earlier how I talked about the sacrifices under the old covenant were simply an annual reminder of your sin? That's what it says. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. We have to offer them every year because they don't totally take away sins. So every year we're going to have to offer on the Day of Atonement animal sacrifices. And it just reminds me how sinful I am. Thanks for the reminder. Right? Thanks for the reminder. As such, those living under the old covenant could really never escape a guilty conscience. But folks, those of us living under the new covenant have been set free from a conscience that continually condemns us. Or at least we should. The fact is, there are a lot of Christians who live daily with a guilty conscience about past mistakes and failures. I told you that I got saved in 1987, and I was saved. God literally took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, but I was young, and I hadn't been fully discipled. I was just being discipled. I was growing in my faith. But the enemy accused me and brought the skeletons out of my closet that I had committed in the past, and I began to live with this guilt about things that I had done in the past, and it was misery. It was misery. I remember I called my mom, and I said, Mom, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. I mean, I love the Lord, don't get me wrong, but I just, I feel so guilty about what I had done in the past. By the way, you want a great definition of misery? Misery is when you have a conscience held captive by false guilt. That's misery. I once read that if psychologists and counselors could convince their clients that they were forgiven, most psychological problems of their clients would, be, would disappear overnight. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our conscience is a good thing. And it is something that the Holy Spirit certainly uses to convict us and to protect us and to guide us. As believers, we obviously want to maintain a sensitive conscience. The Bible talks about the dangers of having a seared conscience. We want to maintain a sensitive conscience. As a matter of fact, that was the aim of the Apostle Paul. So I take pains, great pains, to have a clear conscience towards both God and men. In other words, when I stumble and fall, I'm quick to confess. I want to keep the account short. But the one thing that you will notice about the Apostle Paul is that he didn't let past sins that had been confessed and dealt with to weigh him down any further. And let's not forget, his past was checkered. This was a murderer of Christians. Paul had a ton of blood on his hand. Let me ask you a question. How does a person who once murdered Christians become perhaps the greatest pastor and missionary the world has ever seen? 
The answer is simple. As someone under the new covenant, Paul had his heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Period. End of sentence. Amen? Amen. Satan could accuse him all he wanted. Satan could rattle the skeletons in the closet and say, hey, Paul, look. Paul said, no, 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 no. I'm under the new covenant. It's got a better sacrifice mediated by a better high priest built on better promises. I'm fully forgiven. The law is written on my heart. I'm filled with the spirit of God and I'm a child of God forever. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is who I am. And I will not let what was done in the past and been taken care of by the blood of Christ haunt me today. Haunt me today. Let's not forget that, again, Paul was a murderer. Peter. What about Peter? It's one thing to murder people, but if there was, you think, well, what's worse than murder? The only thing that I can think of worse than murder is what? Denying Christ. Not once, not twice, three times to his face. How does a person who denied Christ three times go on to live the life that he lived and have the impact he has? The answer is simple. Peter, as someone living under the new covenant, he had his heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Here is the point. If you get nothing from my message, get this. If these men who committed really egregious sins could be set free from guilt, a guilty conscience, and become amazing first century ambassadors for Christ, then we can too. But we have to live as new covenant believers. We have to live as if the promises that are told to us in the new covenant actually are ours. Do you want a great promise that comes with the new covenant? Here it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, say it with me, all unrighteousness. When we confess it, it's forgiven. The definition of misery is when we live with false guilt. When we let Satan rattle the skeletons in the closet and we start looking at the skeletons in the closet and we go, oh my goodness, there they are. No, there they are and they're forgiven. And I'm not going to let what has been dealt with by the blood of Christ affect me today. I am going to be somebody who lives fully forgiven Listen, if you're here today and you've been struggling with false guilt, you're in good company. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he grew up, he became a Catholic monk. Before he did his first mass, he was terrified to do the first mass because of the implications. He goes, I'm a sinner. I'm going to officiate the Eucharist and communion. It's impossible. And he was constantly plagued with guilt about things he had done and his sins. And it wasn't until he read the book of Romans and he heard that there is a righteousness from God through faith for all who believe. And he said, oh my goodness, the righteousness I need, there is a righteousness from God through faith to all who believes. And he goes, I don't have a righteousness of my own. It's a free gift from God. I just need to believe. This is the promise of the New Testament, that when we confess our sins, we're not only fully forgiven, okay, it's not just that your account, your, that, that you owe God a debt and you're brought back to zero. If the debt, you know, you, you sin and you go, well, I'm forgiven, so now, now I'm, no. It's his righteousness covers you. So you go from, for, for example, a million dollars in debt. Your debt is not only wiped out, your account is credited a million dollars. That's the righteousness of Christ. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but his righteousness covers you. And I do this all the time. This is me. I'm a sinner. This is Christ. He's perfectly righteous. What does Romans 8.1 say? 
There is no condemnation, none for those that are in Christ Jesus, those that are in Christ Jesus. So what does Bill do? He runs to Christ and puts himself in Christ Jesus. This is Christ. This is me. I'm in Christ. Who do you see now? You see Bill covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's not a righteousness of my own. I don't have any. But it is a righteousness that is given to me by the grace of God so that when I stand before God on judgment day, I stand righteous, not because I have any righteousness in and of my own, but because his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, covers me. False guilt is an absolute killer for Christians. It messed me up for a couple of years as a young Christian. It messed up Martin Luther. And it messes up a lot of people even to this day. Let me conclude by reading an Old Testament verse that has radical new covenant implications. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. By the way, you know what the very next verse says? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know what's interesting? Is if you head north you eventually reach the North Pole, and then you start heading south. And if you go south, you eventually reach the South Pole, and you eventually start going north. But if you go east, when do you ever start going west? You don't. And when you go west, when do you ever start going east? You don't. As far as the east as from the west.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, we're not going through outright persecution yet. But there's verbal persecution. You know, Lord Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5 that you're blessed when people persecute you and cast all kinds of insults and say all kinds of evil falsely on account of me. That's persecution, and we've experienced that as the church. We might experience it in the church, out in the world, wherever it might be, at work, with our friends, with our family. And when that happens, we see what's going on in the world that can be easily discouraging It's certainly discouraging if you're being persecuted. And it's interesting, as we're pondering these things this week, just praying, you know, I've got an email from a lady from Equipping the Saints, and it was very encouraging. For some of you who don't know, that's our radio ministry, and she's in Wyoming, and I just wanted to read this because it goes with our passage today, which we're going to look at. She says, Thank you very much for the excellent teaching on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 regarding the rapture, catching up of the church in the air in the very near future. With the world being in so much turmoil and confusion right now, we believers understand the signs of the times and have so much to look forward to. Thank you for your encouragement in reminding us of the hope of eternal life that is within us. She says, thank you again for all you're doing for the great cause of Jesus. And then she says, keep looking up for your salvation draweth nigh. God bless you all. She's absolutely right. We need to keep looking up. And the way we look up is to look to our Lord Jesus 
and listen to His Word and allow His Word to change our hearts, to set our mind on the things above. And what we're going to see today is that when we encounter difficult times, we need to be encouraged. And certainly God uses believers to encourage us, but He also uses His Word primarily. And so with that in mind, we're going to see encouragement or great encouragement for difficult times as we're going to see that faith's evidence brings about God's judgment and also His relief for His children. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 5 to 10. And this is a big passage. There's a lot there, but I think the main points are pretty clear. I think we'll be able to grasp and understand what the Lord is saying through the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, he's writing a young church. They're less than a year old. He's written his first letter to them, and he has rejoiced in their response to the gospel. They took it and believed it, not as the word of men, but the word of God for what it really is, the word of God, that same word which performs its work in us. They had responded to the gospel and turned from their sin, true salvation. They turned to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven and to to serve and wait for him who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were truly saved, but yet they were suffering greatly. Suffering began when they started to follow Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul was concerned about them, so he writes the first letter to them after he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing, and then he gets a response and then writes this letter in response, 1 Thessalonians. And that's within a couple months of their salvation. Now, it's apparent that they were still suffering greatly for their faith. They're being persecuted. So the Apostle Paul needed to write another letter. And that's what we have in 2 Thessalonians. A letter that explains what we'll see today concerning the great persecution they were going through, which addresses some false letter that might have been brought forth to them or words supposedly from Paul about the day of the Lord had already come. And so they were all confused and they were shaken in a sense. And then he had to give them some basic commands concerning their walk in Christ. And so this church is less than a year old, and he's sending them more truth inspired by the Spirit of God. And today we come to a portion in this passage where we are going to see how we can endure and be encouraged in difficult times. Again, turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, and I want to read starting in verse 3. We looked at verses 3 and 4 last week, so we're just going to read through that into our passage, which is 5 through 10. Then I'm going to read 11 and 12 together because actually in the original language, verses 3 through 12 are actually one long sentence. It's all together. And so we need to see the context here. Verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each of you grows ever greater Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then our passage. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. And then I'll read the portion we'll look at next week, Lord willing. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an intense passage. You were paying attention to what I read. This is a very serious passage. It has to do with the eternal destiny of those who have rejected Christ. And it has a little bit to do with those who are believers, but it talks about the destiny of those who don't know Christ who were also persecuting these Thessalonians. And we're going to see it's an encouragement because God doesn't miss a beat. God doesn't miss a beat when the world beats up on his people, when the world persecutes his children. He doesn't miss a beat. And we need to know that. We need to know that God is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. So with that in mind, when we enter these difficulties, how can we find encouragement for difficult times for following Jesus? You do the right thing. You have a family issue. People may claim to follow Jesus. All these difficulties come with people who name the name of Christ, who appear to be supposedly following him. We'll see a lot of the persecution came from those who were supposedly following the Lord for the Jews and the same thing with the Thessalonians, the Jews who were coming after them. So when we have that difficulty for doing what's right, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's at your work, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your family, with your relatives, whatever it might be, doing what is right, how do we find encouragement for that in those difficult times? Well, first of all, I think we're going to see today that we must realize that our enduring faith as believers, as we suffer for Christ, clearly points to the reality of God's future judgment upon those who are persecuting us. The mere fact that we are enduring points to God's righteous judgment in the future. We need to understand that because people will not get away with what they do to God's children. We pray they get saved, but if not, we see their end here today. Notice he begins in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Now, we need to look at this and understand that this passage is connected to what we have already spoken of. He says this is a plain indication. This is a plain indication. Now, you might notice also in your Bibles that the term this is is in italics. Now, what that means is the translators are saying this is not a word-for-word translation from the Greek. We've added this, they're letting you know, because it makes sense when it goes from one language to another. And often that's the case. It really is the intent, but it doesn't come over as a translation, so they'll put that in there. And it's okay here. You might see in the New King James, which is. That's also in there, and it's also in italics. And so he says, literally here, literally in the Greek, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. And this term, plain indication, comes from the Greek word, en diagma, uh, which spoke of evidence or clear proof, clearly revealing something, manifesting something plainly. 
So he says, a plain indication or manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment. But what's he talking about? We don't talk that way. I don't say a clear evidence of God's judgment. That's not complete, right? What's he talking about? And that's why the translators have added that little portion there to help us see that it points back to what we have already seen and what I read earlier. The reality that these Thessalonians, Paul, as he looks at their life and the response to suffering, he's obligated to give thanks to God for their faith, their faith which is growing and abounding and overflowing and flourishing, and their love for one another which is overflowing. He's bound by God to give thanks. And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches for your what? Perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He's saying basically your perseverance and faith in the midst of all the persecutions which you remain under and you bear up under, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That's what he's saying. We'll get to that in a minute. What does that mean? Because it's kind of confusing. You see, these Thessalonians were being persecuted, as we'll see today, for the kingdom of God. They were not being persecuted for sin. They were not being persecuted for being jerky Christians, arrogant, loudmouths, casting pearls before swine. They were being persecuted for obeying Christ. They were being persecuted for the kingdom. He says they were persevering under that. They were remaining under. And then they were at the end, it says endure. They were bearing up with. They were bearing up with these things. These afflictions, the word means pressure. Indeed, we know in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. It doesn't say all the time, but we will. We're going to enter into, like what the Lord Jesus mentions, that persecution, which the word persecute just means to chase after. And you think about persecution, you look at like our culture these days, where if someone says something that's not politically correct, the internet chases after them with persecution words, whatever it might be. Just goes from one place to another, goes to their work, tries to get them fired, whatever it might be. That's persecution, maybe politically speaking. But for believers, it's when we do what is right, and those who are in Satan's domain, just non-believers, those who are in his domain, pursue us with their words, say things falsely account of us, and certainly physically. There's physical persecution around the world also. Remember what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if the world hates you, John 15, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, John 15, 18, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Slave's not greater than his master. And we look at the persecution we might have gone through or have gone through, and I look at that, you know, personally, whatever it might be as a church, whatever it might be, it's still not that bad. Think about our master. He was persecuted to the point where he's brought to the cross by the hands of godless men, but according to God's predetermined plan. We haven't died yet. We haven't shed blood in our striving against the sin, in a sense. And so the world's going to persecute. And we saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
that these Thessalonians, when they came to faith, they experienced the same persecution that the Jews experienced from the hands of their countrymen when they came to faith. And Paul said, they're not good guys. They persecuted and they also killed the Lord of glory, basically. Let me read that for you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This talks about the beginning of the persecution that they're in, which has now expanded, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. This is an evidence the word is at work in them. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For, he explains, you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, Paul writes. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. They think they're pleasing to God. It's in the name of God they're doing it. Usually it's the religious groups that persecute true believers, those either within the church or without. And he says there, but they're hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Hindering sharing the gospel, terrible sin. And he says here, the result that they always felt the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And they would experience that wrath in 70 AD as God would destroy the temple and cast them out across the world. We know in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians that Paul was so concerned about their afflictions that he sent Timothy to see how they were doing. He was concerned about their faith and that the tempter might have tempted them. They were suffering for Christ. They were suffering for Christ. And I mentioned this in passing, but I want to read this also. Matthew chapter 5, you can just note this and I'll read this for you, verse 10. Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. That means the righteousness of Christ manifest. The rightness of Christ manifest in one's life because they're abiding and trusting in Jesus Christ. When you do the right thing because Christ is leading you by his spirit, using his word to change your heart, and you suffer for it, you're persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, you're a true believer if that's the case. Blessed are you when men cast insults, here you go, at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. How so? On account of me, you're following Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecute the prophets who went before you. It's going to happen. You see, you need to understand the cost when you follow Jesus. You know, when you go build something, you don't just go ahead and start building and not think about how much it costs. You count the cost. Otherwise, you look like a fool when you can't complete the building. The reality is there's a cost to following Jesus. You will lose your sinful life, but you gain eternal life. You will be temporarily persecuted if Christ is manifest in your life. There'll be a sword in your families. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Mother against son and daughter and, and, and so on. The members of his own household will be his enemies. The reality is there's a cost to it, but there's the eternal gain. There's the sufferings. For the glories to follow. For the glories to follow. You make a decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. So these Thessalonians were being afflicted for a genuine relationship. Faux believers, make believers, don't suffer for Christ because Christ's righteousness is not manifest in their lives. They don't suffer for Christ. 
But real believers will suffer. We will temporarily suffer. They're the sufferings for the glories to fall. We will follow in the footsteps of Christ. And these Thessalonians were doing that. They were in a very worldly city, a city that was the center of commerce and activity on the Ignatian Highway. It was very worldly. It's the place that Demas, when he deserted the Lord and Paul, went there to Thessalonica. It was an idolatrous city. It was full of all kinds of sexual temptation and wickedness. And if you don't go along with that, you change. You're no longer that way. You stop doing what's wrong because Jesus is working in your heart. You may lose a relationship. You come to faith and you're doing what's wrong. You stop. You may lose that relationship. And so here he comes back and back in our passage, he says, the fact that you are enduring You're remaining under your bearing up, which is from God. That very fact, because when our faith is tested, it produces endurance. James 1. That very fact is back in our passage, a plain indication or manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now you go, okay, I'm following how it connects. But what does it mean? As I study this, I struggled a lot over it. And I struggle a lot over the study. And I'm always praying, Lord God, what did you intend? I don't understand this. Please help me see from your perspective. And I'm very cautious not to go look at other people's work because then I get their bias. I want to learn from the Word of God what He intended. So what does it mean? How is it that enduring suffering is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment? That's an interesting thought. I didn't get it. Well, one well-known Bible teacher basically says that the term judgment speaks of God's purifying judgment of his saints in the context of persecution, which would be discipline. And that's true. God does use the difficulties upon us to purify us. First Peter chapter 4, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, And if it begins with us first, a refining judgment, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? So that principle is true. But is that what our passage is saying? Is that what it's saying? I don't believe so. Because as I looked at it and I looked at the context, he doesn't just say judgment. He says God's righteous judgment, first of all. It's a judgment that is right. It is just. It is a just judgment. You don't usually see that term connected with our discipline. You don't see that. You see that connected with judgment. And indeed, if you look along here, he explains right after that verse 5, go to verse 6. For it is only just for God to repay with affliction. That's the judgment he's talking about. Verse 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God. Verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So I believe the judgment he's speaking of is God's judgment on the persecutors of these Thessalonians and of the ones who are persecuting Paul and believers as well. On a small scale, but we're going to see it even goes larger than that. So what does he mean here? Well, I'm confident This term righteous judgment speaks in the small sphere, as I've mentioned, of the judgment upon the persecutors of these Thessalonians and even greater those ultimately who do not know Christ and do not obey the gospel. So I believe the context demands 
that these very Thessalonians enduring in persecution, remaining, they're not slipping out. They're not faux believers where difficulty comes and they're gone. They're not following Jesus anymore, at least in their actions. These true believers are. I believe it is a manifest evidence that God must judge those who are persecuting them. It is clearly an evidence. When you endure through what God allows in your life from those who are evil and wicked persecuting you, it is a plain indication that they are on their way to judgment. Because you are a genuine article because of your endurance in Christ. And therefore God must righteously judge those who are persecuting you. I believe that's what he's saying. It's a plain evidence. So I need to know that. I need to know that those who are persecuting us will not get away with it. I need to know that God hasn't missed a beat. You see, verse 6, For after all it is only just, or the word right, comes from the word righteous.
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.